I welcome you to this special edition of Living Well is the Best Revenge, a production of the Fleming Foundation. Our special guest today is Chef Garrett Fleming. He is a well-known chef in the Washington, D.C. area. And we're going to be talking today about Italian cooking and how to adapt it to uh, an American kitchen. We're going to be concentrating on one dish only, uh, for the most part. Welcome to the show, Garrett. Or Hi, should, how are you doing? Or should I say chef? Can I call you chef throughout the program? Please don't. Okay. All right, chef. <laughs> the, um, today, um, you know, the past couple of weeks, there have been a lot of the news about the town Amatrice, which is a town in Lazio, I don't know, 30 miles from Rome. The, the, it is where the earthquake did particular damage, and it's a, it's a lovely, historic, charming town, but uh, it's in particularly bad shape these days. Um, Amatrice is very famous for a dish, which is pasta, either spaghetti, or some people use bucatini, alla matriciana. Um, the name is, it's frequently in Roman restaurants, it used to be called alla matriciana, as if there was some, th- some style of cooking called matriciana, but this was just a <laughs> illiteracy because it's, it's, uh, it's cooking in the style of amatrice, this special dish. Um, how do you know what? What's just describe for us the classic way of uh, of making it in the simplest way? Well, do you mean pre or post tomato? Post the di- okay. the dish the dish isn't okay. First, okay, we want to talk historically. Uh, how would you have made this dish without tomato? So it's a very very old recipe, uh, and I guess traditionally the only ingredients that were important were the use of guanciale, the uh, the unsmoked cured jowl bacon, uh, and then pecorino. Uh, then later later uh, ingredients, you know, onions and even later garlic and olive oil. Uh, those all all got added in, and then eventually uh, tomato couple hundred years ago uh, but it's it's uh, it's essentially cooking cooking your your fatty pork so you get a little crisp around it but not not actually crispy dry but very moist in the middle so you have little nibbles and then uh, to do the fat after it renders the fat this is before the olive oil was introduced after it renders the fat you toss your pasta with it with some of your pecorino yeah why um do you, do you know? I mean, I I I happen to know, but do you know why uh, why this recipe developed in uh, Amatrice? Uh, I what I've the what I've what I've heard and read is that it's actually based on. I'm probably going to mispronounce it. Something like uh, Grichet or Grichy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which which were like bread sellers. And so they would uh, they would wander around. It was just meant to be a very very simple recipe, much like the uh, much like the, what's that recipe from the, the uh, much like the uh, 
uh, what's the recipe from like the fishing area down south? Uh, marinara. Yeah. It's like, or or uh, or puttanesca. Yeah. Simply meant to be what they had at hand. And they had these ingredients at hand because there's a lot of sheep herding in the region and pig farming. So the one thing you'd you'd always have sheep cheese, pecorino. Mm-hmm. And and you'd have uh, cured, uh, uh, cured uh, hog jowls and other cheap cuts. So it 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 is said that it that probably it was popular. Something like this was popular among the shepherds and the farmers uh, before it became a you know a, a, a regular culinary dish. The the this grichi business. Uh, that's a nobody really knows what the uh, derivation of that word is. Some people think it's because either people from the Grison uh, part of Switzerland moved in, or vice versa, because people moved to Grison. I don't, I don't believe that for a minute, but that's a, a theory told. All right, let's talk about how it's been made historically over the past hundred years. The the the, the kind of cl- it's. It's considered a, a world heritage dish, a signature dish from uh, from Lazio, Lazio, ancient Latium, that is the territory around Rome. So the uh, without going, we'll get into some of the details. How, if you went into an average Roman restaurant where they did a good job, what would what what would we get? You get. Uh... I mean, it, it's hard to talk about this dish without getting into arguments over how, but it, it's, again, it starts out at least now, which is funny because you could say now traditionally, even though it wasn't always traditional, yeah. you'd start out with olive oil, no garlic, and then you'd, uh, about medium heat, and then you'd hit it with a julienne red onion. And then it... Uh, you get. I think you don't. You almost don't want to get any Maillard reaction. You want to soften it so you don't release any of the noxious gases from. A, or so you do release them, uh, just so it softens. But not, they're completely limp and melted. But uh, that's why it's medium heat and not super low heat. Uh, but just until you get that sharp onion flavor out. And yeah. And to that, yeah. And then, uh, well, I'm sorry. I I, I I skipped a step. First, in that olive oil, you usually. Uh, crisp your your little I don't know what they call it in Italian, but lardone of uh, of guanciale, and you again. If some people keep it in, I'm for somebody. I it makes more sense to me to keep it out, even though the flavor is a little less. The texture on your lardone is much better if you render it in your olive oil, get some of that flavor out, remove them from the pan, and add it in at the very end. But a lot of recipes really have you keep it in the yeah. whole time. We'll get we'll get to the, we'll get to the detail. We're going to argue over every single point, but let's right. just get the the, the, the big broad sure. view. So you saute you saute onion. You saute sli- thin sliced onion, not chopped onion. Thin sliced mm-hmm. onion. Uh, <clears throat> you're calling for red. A lot of people do. Some people don't. Thin, it's sweeter. Thin sliced onion. Then when that is soft. But uh, uh, then you add in the strips of uh, strips of guanciale, which is unsmoked, uh, the unsmoked jowls, uh, cured jowls of a, of a pig, and then what? Uh, and then when you get minimal color on your meat and your onions, and then you add your tomato product. 
And here you have uh, something beautiful in Italian Queen where you have options depending on what month it is. If you're in the months, and depending what region you're in, because clearly, you know, uh, you're going to have a lot more access to fresh tomatoes for a longer time the more south you go. But if you're going to add canned tomatoes, clearly the, the ideal one is still going to be the San Marzano, even though it's not from that region. Those are the sweetest ones you can get that are a DOC product in, in Italy. Uh, DOC, not, DOC meaning it's it's like a, it's like the it's the denomination. The naming of it is control. It's a term which originally comes from wine. So the the Italians yeah. always just say doc, and it's they're so few, yeah. It's one of the few doc products uh, south of Rome. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to that, and then the very important thing is that you don't cook. You don't cook it very long. Yeah. Because the longer you cook the tomatoes, the more you disrupt the balance of acid to sugar. Um, which in the deal with in the dock San Martano is beautiful, and if you have access to fresh tomatoes and you process them the right way, uh, then they can be just as beautiful if not more. Okay. Now let's let's start let's start with a few things. Um some people, we, we said earlier, some people use red onion, some people use um, yellow onion. I've done it both ways. I think red onion is a little better. It's a little sweeter. A little sweeter. It's, not, yeah. it's uh, easier. It releases the gases more quickly, I believe. And I think that's maybe because of the sugar or whatever, but they become much more palatable. I mean, a red onion raw is much more palatable than a white onion raw. Yeah. So clearly, you know, there's more, it's easier, it's got an easier, uh, it's much easier to screw up a white onion, you know, in cooking it than it is a red onion in this process. Yeah, you know, um, I looked at a few uh, recipes. Um, I've always followed Adaboni, who I think is, uh, if, the, if, if there's one person to whose judgment you would take on, on things like this, it would be hers. Mario Batali insists on red onion. And uh, and I think that's I think that's that's good. Um, now Adaboni and I think a number a number of very famous cooks, you've left out a step, which is as the as the uh, guanciale is cooking, and to prevent partly to prevent it from crisping up too much, and partly to sweeten the sauce, they'll add uh, a dry white wine. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, and uh, I have to say, I, I I always do that because my my technique for making sure uh, guanciale or bacon doesn't crisp up too much is is not as good as a a, a real chef. But it, it is it is very common. And uh, and Araboni in her book on uh, regional Italian cooking, which I strongly re- recommend, you have to know how to cook to use it because she tells. Very little about technique. She assumes you know the basics, and then uh, just gives you interesting recipes from different parts of of Italy. She's also author of Il Talismano della Felicità, the Talisman of Happiness, because she believed that uh, uh, that a, a way for a family to be happy was to, to was to eat well, and to eat well, you either had to be rich, in which you had a, a good cook on staff. And that was, she was uh, writing in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 
and 50s, this was becoming less and less common in Italy for even middle-class people. So her great mission was to teach middle-class Italian mothers and housewives how, how to cook in the great tradition. So she uses, uh, Adaboni uses, uh, uses white wine, and then you add, uh, then you add the tomato and, uh, and, uh, and cook it as you say. Depending, it's obviously going to be a big difference whether you're using, if you're using fresh tomato, that's got to, that's got to cook down and become. It releases, it releases much more water. Yeah. yeah. Essentially the canned tomatoes are already blanched, which is what you do with fresh tomatoes anyway. Uh, and then here's where I think you can follow, I mean, it's, 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 it's what we're talking about to begin with, where you can follow a different technique and get a better result. So the French blanch their tomatoes and peel them, whereas the Italians are much known for, for blanching their tomatoes for a longer time in boiling water. Yeah. And then they run it through a food mill to yeah. remove the, to remove the, uh, the peel. Yeah. But, uh, there's no reason if you there's no reason to use the food mill if you just peel them. Yeah. But uh but, but it does take longer to, uh, once you have that they're full of water, not from the boiling process, just they're naturally yeah. full of water. And so you've got to cook all that out and it will still taste fresh as long as you don't cook it much past that. I have to I have to uh I have to confess that I I made uh I made this dish a few nights ago. And I looked around, and I didn't like any of the tomatoes we had. We didn't have, and we didn't have any canned or boxed tomatoes. We didn't have any San Marzanos or any of the pomi from uh, from Parmalat. So uh, your mother, as you know, as you well remember, uh, puts up a lot of. Uh, she makes a lot of tomato sauce. That is, it's just sauce tomatoes. You know, where it's it's the volume is reduced, and then she cans it. So I used that instead, and I have to say it turned out about as perfectly as any of my attempts at making a good alla matriciana have have done. Well, those are those are oftentimes better than any San Marzano that you can get. Yeah, can. yeah, yeah. Your mother likes to use. Uh, she likes to use. Um, well, she's got a couple uh, brandy wine. Uh, I think is her favorite for making making these sauces. Right, with rather than she doesn't do a lot of aromas, but uh, she makes excellent. Uh, uh, Those boxcar willies are pretty good. Oh yeah, and uh, she likes something called Mister Stripey. Although oh, I, yeah. the color, I don't like the color of it when I'm if I'm eating it, but it, it has a delicious uh, mellow flavor. So. One of the things about this dish is obviously every time you make it, it's going to be somewhat different depending on what 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 variety of tomatoes, whether they're fresh tomatoes or canned tomatoes or a good tomato sauce. Never, never buy uh, like a prepared tomato sauce with flavorings and things in it. You don't even want uh, salt or sugar or anything. Just just plain boiled down tomato. And you can you can buy a reasonably credible uh, version of that. So let's let's um, so and, and uh, I, I strongly recommend the white wine. What about garlic? Well, garlic. Uh, I like garlic because it again it depends. If I was using San Marzano's from a can, then I would I would absolutely use the garlic because I feel that it's not going to be as explosively fresh and tangy and sweet. And it's a great product, but they're not. Look, if you have beautiful tomatoes that are from a reputable farmer that you grew yourself, you really want to highlight those tomatoes. Uh, and since there's no, and in this circumstance, that's where I, I would, if I had access to non-smoked guanciale, I would prefer using that over 
the uh, a smoked bacon. Yeah. For the simple fact that you're gonna, that even though it's not, uh, it's not all about the tomatoes. If you have access to them, why would you get in the way? Then you just have pork and tomato, which is a beautiful marriage. And if your tomato's beautiful and your pork's beautiful, then don't get in the way. Um, but if you are using something like a canned uh, San Marzano, uh, it's I would I would use garlic because you're just adding another depth of flavor. Uh, as long as you cook it the right way, which is just like a just like a classic pomodoro, where you, that is super low. You go really low, so you get no color on your garlic, yeah. and you don't, and you just have a very very mellow garlic flavor. And to that, you add the fresh tomato. It's uh, to, to the same end. I would I would add it to this dish, but I mean, again, it, it's going to be different depending on what you're using. Let Let's talk about the pork meat. Okay, guanciale, as you as you have pointed out is uh, unsmoked uh, uh, jowls, hog jowls, and uh, it's been cured, that is presumably salt cured, or how, how did mm -hmm. that, yeah, it's salt cured, usually, but not yeah. smoked. Yep, usually it's, it's uh, uh, I mean, there's tons of recipes for it, depending on what region, but it's, it's a heavy majority salt, and then sometimes there's a little sugar, and then there's some aromatics. Sometimes it's just black pepper. Sometimes it gets weird and crazy, and you have, like, juniper berry and rosemary. Uh, but you rub it down, and you draw out moisture, and you kind of set the protein, and then you hang it. Uh, and depending on the recipe, again, it can take up to it can take up to a month, six weeks. Uh, it can take a while, um, which is where it actually takes, it takes longer than American bacon because American bacon really can be done within, depending on the size of your belly, can be done within almost a week. Well, uh, my my belly, unfortunately, is is getting larger by the uh, by the day. The um, now let's let's obviously what 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 I made it the other night. I made it with some very plain, unimpressive bacon. Not I I would recommend against um, against um, some of the standard brand bacons because they it seems to me they have a, ta a trashy flavor to them things like Oscar Mayer and some of those I used an I, I used a very simple flavored bacon uh, Usinger's bacon from Milwaukee I didn't, I didn't even know they made bacon. mean me neither and uh, it's very wholesome tasting bacon you know it's very low on the very low on the smoky side and it worked out pretty pretty well now what let's suppose you can't get guanciale and let's suppose you don't want to use uh, bacon. We'll talk about different kinds of bacon to use in a minute. Can you? What about hog jowls, which you can buy? Sure. Why well, wouldn't? Uh, of course, because I mean, it, when you cook a cured product, you're denaturing something that's already denatured. So yeah. by its very recipe, you're. I think it's great when you use a smoke product, but when you when you do it with guanciale. It's strange. It's not. It's not as bad as cooking prosciutto, for example, which I think is disgusting. Yeah. Uh, but because that's. I mean, the difference being the fat content. When you're denaturing cured protein again, uh, it really concentrates the flavor of a very concentrated flavor, and it becomes unpleasant. But when you have like you know silky white fat as your main component, then it actually gets. It, you're you're just adding a Maillard reaction to it, so you're getting like some crispy caramelization and browning proteins and sugars and it's it can be quite delicious and you're adding something to it so yeah sure even though it's not cured you could definitely you know season up a little bit of fat back or jowl and uh you're gonna get a delicious product that you can add 
Now, there is, you can buy smoked hog jowl, but there'd be no reason we're trying to avoid this smoking. So when you buy hog jowls in a, in a, in a supermarket, especially one that deals with, uh, has a southern clientele or a southern African-American clientele, they're buying it to, to go to, you know, to cook with collard greens. What, what, uh, what, what, has anything been done? Is that just hog jowls that have been refrigerated or are they cured at all? Well, I mean, I've seen both. If you're talking, I mean, there, there is, there's, what is it, uh, fatback, yeah. which is salted. Yeah. Uh, and f- that's not a jowl, but no. I, I, I'm sure they do the same thing with jowl if yeah. they're not doing anything else yeah. with it. Uh, it's very rare to see, um, I, I I mean, it's unless you're getting it from a pig farmer, it's very rare to see actual jowl, at yeah. least in the United States from me. Uh, because one, a 300-pound pig only has two of them. Yeah. So a lot of places aren't going to carry it just because it's not, and, and there's not a lot of uses for it. Yeah. Unless I've seen them smoked because then you have something for, you know, as you say, like collard greens or, yeah. or just like a super stock. But, uh, yeah, and that's an easy way they can just throw all the, it, it's like the, the shanks and the jowls all and the snouts, all that's in the ears. They can throw all that in the smoker and then people buy it for various uses. Yes. Uh, what about, what about, uh, you know, the commercial fat back you see, you know, I, I think Hormel and all the, the, uh, yeah. the, the big pork packers. And to me, that tastes very salty. What, 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 what it, would you use it? Would you do something to get rid of the salt or what? Sure. Blank, uh, cold water. Just soak yeah. it. Dip it in cold water. Do it three times. Wait like 10, 15 minutes. Nice water uh, and pull it out. Just dunk it. Let it sit. It'll leach out some of the salinity and uh, change out the water a couple times depending on how salty you want it. Yeah. Uh, just cut off a little corner and cook it up and see if it's edible. Okay. That, if, you, if you don't do that, then it's extremely salty. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to look for the what kinds with a streak of lean in it, or uh, or? Uh, I like the lean. The lean yeah. is uh, I, and that's where yeah, it depends what you're using it for. If you uh, if you're using it for something like this, the lean will give you a little bit of flavor. Yeah. But if you're getting if you're getting a garbage cut like Hormel, these are from these massive horrible pigs that are living in horrible conditions, <laughs> and their lean not their lean's just not going to taste that good. Yeah. The um uh. Another another aspect of this is, you know, Adaboni says uh, when you're frying the onions initially, well, not frying, when you're cooking the onions initially, her preferred fat is lard. Oh, yeah. She says lard or, uh, or olive oil. But I notice that when she then describes the recipe, she says heat the lard in a pan. In other words, she really doesn't want olive oil. She wants lard. I used I used uh, the other night I used two thirds lard one third olive oil and I had and I'm not sure uh, your mother thought that she said well, I wouldn't want to eat that much lard every night and I said well we're not serving this more than once a month in the first place and it's really by the time you're I think I used a couple of tablespoons to feed three people so we got by the time you're through you're eating maybe two teaspoons of lard which is no worse for you than butter basically no no I mean it'd be so so I wouldn't worry about that so th- that uh, I must say that that I think one of the reasons two of the reasons that uh, the, the dish I made the other night seemed to be so well is first I cooked the onion properly and it it still was noticeable as onion, but on the one hand, 
but it you know it, it wasn't it wasn't so that you could crunch into it which you know you, you get these sort of like onion snakes if you don't cook it well enough but the right. other thing with the lard the lard really uh i think made a big difference well you know uh this is um this this dish i was trying to think the other day of power of similar dishes because it, it is so it is ultra simple and even if you mess it up it's still going to be very good I mean, if you just if you just soft fry some bacon and onion uh, in olive oil and add some some uh, add some to a decent tomato sauce to it, a little white wine, it, it and then uh, finish with uh, with a sheep cheese. By the way, I couldn't. I thought we had pecorino uh, romano. I couldn't find any. Uh, and what I found, I had a Greek pecorino. And oh. so, uh, and one of the more common ones. And so, I mixed half Greek pecorino with Parmigiano, and it came out fairly credible. So, and even so, you you really can wing this uh, dish. Yeah, it, there are ways of making it better and better, which is what we're talking about today. But anybody, you don't even have to know how to cook to make something that's going to taste good in about fifteen twenty minutes. Oh yeah. Now, I re- I think, yeah, go on. I was gonna say I think I think part of uh, part of the reason that it's, it's uh, uh, people are so prideful about the method is because it's so popular and people from the region. I mean, what, uh, honestly, what's the difference between a minced onion and a julienne onion when you cook it? Yeah. Well, nothing. Uh, honestly, like you're gonna get the same. It's not like it, you really want to get a, a thin strip of onion in your mouth. Of no. course not. But since historically that's the way people have done it, and that's the way their grandparents did it in the region, when they see somebody that's not from their region doing it in any way different than how they did it, there's going to be an immense amount of pride behind it. And no, that's not how you do it. That's not how you do it. And it's 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 a testament to how popular the dish is. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm with I'm with them. I've done it with chopped I've done it with chopping the onion often. And I've had more mediocre success that way than because as cooking the sliced onion is a little bit more tricky. But uh, when I've cooked the sliced onion right, it still it maintains a little bit of the onion strip uh, uh, identity, you know, as you're eating, and yet it has mostly melded into the sauce, mostly. So, as I was saying, I was trying to think about a similar dish, and what I came up with, the only thing I could think of, there's a dish from the Abruzzo, which is made with uh, fresh fresh chopped tomatoes, and what you do is you uh, uh, saute uh, onion or garlic, uh, or not, with pancetta, and we should we should re, re, let's go back to pancetta because some people use it in this dish and I don't think it works. Uh, you, you with pancetta, which is a, which is from the pancha, the belly. It's a, it's unsmoked uh, uh, a kind of uh, belly meat bacon, and uh, but very mild, very bland, very delicious. And then you add mint, a fresh mint, and some hot pepper. And uh, and and uh, to keep it from and and to and to keep it from scorching, you can again use a little white wine. Although that's not uh, that's not an uh, obligatory part of the recipe. Now that comes from the Abruzzo, and that once upon a time the village of Amatrice was actually in the administrative district 
of Abruzzo. So I think we're dealing with two with a, with a similar dish which went off in different directions. Uh, in mm-hmm. the the Abruzzese, you know, went went with the the fresh mint. And by the way, there are not many Italian dishes with fresh mint. So it's a it's a it's a very delightful dish to make. But let's like yeah. What what some people I've noticed in some uh some uh, website, Italian cooking websites, they'll say um, guanciale or pancetta. I th- I think I think bacon is a better call than uh, a good bacon is a better call than uh, than the pancetta. But what do you think? I think uh, I think pancetta is uh, it's usually much more seasoned. Um, yeah. And so, and there's there's that uh, there's that heavy juniper sometimes. Yeah. Which when you and there's a higher protein content. Yeah. Much more protein. Exactly. Lean, it's too meaty. Yeah, which will just throw off a lot of it. Whereas there, when you cook bacon, it's true. There is the same amount. It's the same cut, but one, it's not as it's not cured as much. So when you do cook it, it it's not. It's not it, you cook it when you do cook it. It doesn't it doesn't give you the the issues that I have with the prosciutto. Whereas the lean on the pancetta, I don't really. It turns very rubbery, very very rubbery. Yeah, you know if um, if a purist, you know if somebody like uh, uh, Luciano Bujali or so or some great uh, who's not really a chef, which is a cooking expert. But if if a, if a if a if a if an Italian purist were to hear this conversation, he'd be holding his ears. What you used Milwaukee bacon, and you mm-hmm. and and you used uh, you used Milwaukee bacon. Your wife's tomato sauce from uh, from Brandywine tomatoes, not Romas. And on top of that, you know your your uh, your your. Uh, you're talking about using all these different techniques that are that are that are really inappropriate for this dish. What's the answer to that? Bujali is afforded the luxury because, <laughs> he is, because he is not a chef. He is not. Uh, there's uh, who is it? Giro, the very famous sushi chef, uh, describes his cuisine. Even though he's very much a purist. There's uh, it's such a history tradition in making sushi that when he does go outside the box, he's considered uh, he's considered contemporary. And he, yeah. he said this beautiful quote where he's, he said, "We honor tradition through innovation." And, yeah. and everything everything technically is bastardized from something or another. You know, from yeah. you know uh, clearly this dish this dish pre pre coming to America had no tomatoes. Yeah. So. The addition of tomatoes, just because uh, he's allowed the luxury to be a purist, because he's not—he's not moving tradition in any way. He's not trying to be a part of cuisine. He's merely a looker and a kind of historian of cuisine. So when he speaks, it's from a very different position. Yeah. And I'm not saying that people like that need to be—they need to be around because they're going to hold on to. They're going to hold on to these yeah, traditions they, and make force people to look at them. I think and they. I, I think they need to be in the majority because <laughs> relative. No, but what I mean is, relatively few people are going to be positively creating to the tradition. You know, it's like uh, like uh, in natural selection, most genetic changes in species destroy the species. It's the rare change that makes the species more adaptive and successful. So, if imagine if. Every cook in the world, every everybody who's ever cooked pasta, decided that they're going to develop uh, alla matriciana in their own way, and there would be no there would be no traditional core. 
So you need, I think you need this, this, this heavy weight of tradition, like gravity, that then, then, bright, then people, either out of necessity, because here, here in Rockford, Illinois, I can't get these, most, some of these ingredients. Unless, you know, I, I send off for them or bring them back. So you've got, you've got the, the need to be able to improvise. But also, you, you, if, if, if you become good, then, then what you want to do is to be able to throw in what you want. For example, I've sometimes finished with parsley. That's, that's, that's illegitimate. But a little bit of Italian parsley at the end gives, it, gives a little brightness on the top. Well, I mean, there's where there's the catch twenty two of, uh, of of being a chef and being a part of this, this. You can either be stuck; you will forever be limited if you limit yourself through tradition. Yeah. And so the best, even though there's comfort in it, and there's 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 uh, skill to that art, there's clearly uh, there's less motivation. The, the truly great chefs are never going to want to be pigeonholed into someone's storyline. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think that's an excellent point. But it's like um, they used to talk about poetic license, and uh, most of which should have been revoked a long time ago. Uh, you know, but that, but so the point is that somebody who has earned his spurs, so to speak, either as a professional chef with professional training or like your mother, no professional training, but she's been cooking all these years and has developed a very fine technique and a very fine understanding. When she decides, when I ask her, well, where'd you get this recipe? And she said, I remember something from years past, but I just made it up as I went along because she's earned the right to do that, just as you have earned the right to do it. Uh, what you don't want is uh, we, uh, we have some friends, including members of our family, who like to walk into a kitchen and make things up as they go along, refusing to learn from the tradition. I say you start with the heavy weight of tradition, learn, learn what it has to teach you, and it's at that point that you can then start being original. Well, it's it's interesting that you use the word gravity to describe this because it was uh, it was Newton who said you know standing on the shoulders of giants is how I've accomplished you know, yeah. what I've done. Yeah. Simply saying that if he had never been part of a tradition, then he never would have been able to take it where he did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, the the great Werner Heisenberg who, when asked, he was he was one of the great physicists of the twentieth century, and he when asked. Who was the? Who were the great predecessors that allowed him to do what he did? Was it? Was it? Uh, was it Einstein? Was it? Was who are the? Who are the people who got it mostly right? And his answer was Plato, because Plato understood that all that the universe was based on number, and he said, and, and any time you depart from that that basic fact, you you begin to you begin to develop false theories. So, I mean, if, if Heisenberg can, can go back for inspiration to Plato, I think, I think we can go back uh, to Adaboni for, uh, for instruction on Italian cuisine. But what about something where I know we do disagree is uh, you, uh, I, I think you're more inclined to, to uh, sort of fusionism, you know, taking from different traditions. I Innovating within a tradition is fine with me, but I, you know, I don't want sweet and sour sauce on my pasta. Really? Because agrodolce, yes. Italian words, I'm pretty sure means yes. sweet and yes. sour. Yes, but but it's almost never. It's it's used for certain for certain dishes. Much more common in Sicily. 
Basically, once you say, once you say the puttanesca is a great, great example of sweet and sour. Well, it it depends on. There are about five different puttanescas. Which with the one with not the not the puttanesca made with uh, with uh, with cold uncooked tomato. No, but but the cooked the cooked tomato puttanesca. Uh, uh, I think that's Neapolitan style. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, in general, if you ask the Italian what do they think of Asian food or British food, they'll say, I don't like all that agrodolce. I mean, they'll say this openly. But, they, mm-hmm. but, it, but it, has a, it has a minor feature in uh, aspect, especially in Sicily, where they, like, they, they cook with raisins and they'll have vinegar and they'll have various things in it. Yeah. But uh, I think... Uh, uh, I don't like fusionism in music. I don't like. I don't. I don't. I don't want jazz with a symphony orchestra. Uh, I think Rhapsody in Blue is a disgusting composition, and uh, and uh, and I prefer. I prefer to stay with inner tradition. But I think when you use the word fusion, given that it, I don't know, cropped up, what, like maybe ten years ago, twelve yeah. years ago, maybe even longer, uh, to describe a movement in cuisine which is supposed to be hip. But all the restaurants that have sprung from there have been very, very um, I don't know, they were done for the sake of a trend. It's a trend in cuisine, and trends are not lasting. Uh, as long as you use that word, not to say that people haven't always tried to do that. Sure. Uh, one of the first restaurants I ever worked in, which was, I'm sure they didn't quite get the what people were trying to push as fusion, was a Vietnamese-French fusion restaurant, which was mind-boggling because Vietnamese cuisine as a whole is 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 influenced heavily by French cuisine. Yeah. So I feel as it, that if, if you want to say that as a cuisine is fusion, then I think that I'm misusing the word fusion as it applies to the trend. Whereas, you know, when you take I think I think as a notion taking two two cuisines that have very little in common, say like uh, uh, Japanese and Chinese um, or even even further apart than that, but those are pretty far apart. And when you try and uh, you get some horrible results when people try and force these things together. Yeah. Whereas when you see when you see two cultures that are interacted for a considerable time start coming up with dishes, and these are based in history through both of them. Yeah. This isn't a fusion. This is this is how cultures grow yeah. and how yeah. cuisines come about. So I think the word, yeah, bastardizing things is, is, is always, I just read a, a quote from Bujali who asked, what would you like for your last meal? And he hilariously said, I would like to either have bastardized Italian food or anything fusion. Like, really? And so he said, well, yeah, because then I'd just be ready to die. I'll give you an example of, of an interesting fusion cuisine, and that's Tex-Mex. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, no, no, no. Good Tex-Mex, like good Texas chili. I mean, I'm talking about the good stuff where, you know, it's a stew with fre- with, uh, with, dr- with dried peppers. And, you know, there, there is, if you, if you uh, we go along the border, there, 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 it, it is good. Not the, not the junk they, uh, they, they, they sell uh, in the rest of the country, but, uh, but, you know, I some of these. that's all I know. That's yeah, all I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I think we should carry this conversation on in the future. We got a lot to talk about. I had questions I was going to ask you, like <clears throat> why are there no good Italian restaurants in America? But uh, <laughs> yeah. but you 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 you've already gotten into trouble for blasting one uh, one Italian American restaurant, so we won't we won't have to repeat that. 
Uh, well, that's uh, Bujali said about it. He's, he lives in New York sometimes. Yeah. And he said it's not that there aren't really good dishes that would be at, set, be comfortable at the best restaurant in Italy. He said there are those. Yeah. But he said as a whole, you know, and that comes back to, you know, being an Italian restaurant in another country. Yeah. The motivations are one. Why, what is your motivation? Because yeah. you're not going to be appreciated for what you are. Even if you were able to put the best Italian restaurant in the world in New York, you would not be appreciated because you were not in it. No. You know, um, uh, Navrazo, Andre Navrazov, whom you know, uh, who lives in, uh, who's been living in Italy for a long, long time, decades, and now lives in Palermo, uh, but divide, you, for many years, and to, to this day, divides a lot of his, his time between, uh, between Palermo and London. And he says, what would happen in London is they'll open up a, a great restaurant, say, it's a, it's Abruzzese cooking, and all Abruzzese dishes, all done right because the family came from one little part, and they're they're really trying to carry on the tradition. And then somebody comes in and says, "I want spaghetti carbonara," and he says, "Well, we don't make carbonara in the Abruzzo." Well, what I mean, it, it it begins to be like the, uh, it's a high level problem that you face in that wonderful Stanley Tucci movie, uh, Big Night, where where they're where, what you mean my. My, my, her spaghetti don't get no meatball, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, you have polpetti, don't you? Someone <laughs> on there. Yeah, so, uh, and he said that, that any restaurant that opens in London with good intentions, with good cuisine, with, you know, all, all native, all local, all, all wonderful stuff, but it quickly gets absorbed into the London uh, Italian network scene, or whatever, whatever become, is beginning to be hot in London, even whether whether it, whether it's food from Milan or food from Sicily, it's going to end up in this poor Abruzzese restaurant because people demand it. There's also no sense of sequence of courses, even in even in most very good places. If they serve you pasta, it's a pasta for three people, and then so the idea of a primo and a secondo or an, and an antipasto, this is pretty much impossible. But I think we'll save this. We <clears throat> we really have run out of time. We'll save this for another time, and. Uh, so this is uh, Thomas Fleming with son Chef Garrett, and we're going to say goodbye and sign off. <laughs>